Welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. Good day, everyone. I'm Steve King, the Managing Director at Cyber Theory, and today's episode is going to explore the world of cybersecurity insurance, which is not as well understood as it should be, particularly in today's crazy markets. Joining me today is Lynn Peachy, an expert in cyber insurance, currently serving as the Director of Business Development at RATA, an incident response company in the cybersecurity insurance space. In addition to the last eight years or so in cybersecurity, Lynn earned her two bachelor degrees from Rutgers, one in psychology and another in industrial relations, and earned her JD from Pace University's Elizabeth Hobbs School of Law. Lynn also holds adjuster licenses in multiple states, including New York, California, Texas, and Florida, and is also admitted to practice at the, both New Jersey and New York bars. So welcome, Lynn. I'm glad you could join me today. Thanks so much, Steve. Pleasure to be here. Happy to discuss this topic with you, um, particularly with all the um, you know media attention and everything else on all the um, ransomware incidents and everything else that the industry is seeing around this and which happens to involve insurance. Yeah, no kidding. So, Lynn, what is cybersecurity insurance? And and you know, let's start like insurance 101 here and tell us what it covers and how how people should approach it. Sure. So cybersecurity insurance is an insurance policy that's designed to indemnify and in some cases defend an insured organization against risks associated with maintaining digital environments, networks, assets, and data. There are several types of policies in this space. Um, There are standalone cyber policies, which indemnify organizations against first-party risks i.e. those happening to the organization itself. And that includes a bad actor's unauthorized access to data systems and networks, including exfiltration of data, deployment of malware like ransomware, causing an employee to make a fraudulent fund transfer under the guise that it's going to a legitimate entity. And it could even include malfeasance of a rogue employee doing something nefarious with system access or data access. These type of first-party cyber insurance policies are both reimbursement-based, requiring an insured to prove their loss, and they can also be pay on behalf of where an insurance policy is covering vendor costs and fees from the outset. There's also more robust, what I like to call 360-type insurance policies in the cyber world, and these are supposed to protect against the gamut of risks that can happen in an incident, and that means not only the first-party risk that we just discussed, but also third-party claims. So those alleging negligence for failure to protect data or to secure an organization. It can include as broad as a media claim, so an IP infringement claim or a professional services claim uh, sounding in errors and omissions uh, or the performance of a tech service. There's also coverage for regulatory actions, fines, and penalties, which can sometimes arise out of um, a large-scale data breach resulting in you know, multiple customers being impacted. Um, and then finally, there's also business interruption coverage uh, on these policies, which can provide coverage for both an insured organization's outage in terms of their profit and loss, or if there's a third-party provider that suffers an incident or a ransomware attack, um, then there can be coverage for an insured under their own policy uh, and their revenue that they've lost. Finally, and not to be too confusing, there's policies that combine some or all of the modules described above. So there's 
policies that just cover the first party cyber coverage and the third party, you know, security sounding claims. Uh, and they wouldn't provide coverage for those media or professional services types claims. There's also endorsements uh, on pretty much every policy, which can throw a wrench in things and is usually the result of negotiating something specific that an organization needs through the help of their broker. I think ultimately, organizations should approach cyber insurance as a necessary function of doing business in the 21st century. And until there's greater alignment between the government and private sector to prevent and insulate against the current risk landscape, the cost of an incident or multiple incidents in a given year, most of these policies only have a one-year duration. They can even bankrupt companies. um, And sometimes having multiple incidents would far outweigh the cost of, of the premium associated with the policy. So it really is a tool that should be part of every organization's risk management planning and incident response planning, in my humble opinion on that. Of course, it seems like it has gotten far more complicated in the last seven or eight years. Has that been your experience as well? Absolutely. And and I think it's because when we were first underwriting this risk in the early 2000s, you didn't have a clear picture of what could go wrong. And you also didn't have a clear picture of what a client's environment actually looked like. Uh, You were asking questions off of a questionnaire, a paper questionnaire. Even in recent years, you might be doing a single uh, external scan of vulnerabilities. And it's just not a real-time depiction of of what an organization's cyber risks are in a given year. Well, we still don't have, uh, from my point of view, very much uh, actuarial data upon which to base the underwriting theories. How do you determine how exposed a prospect company is to cyber risk and to the threat of a cyber attack? Sure. I mean, I, I didn't personally do underwriting myself, but I know that our underwriters that, you know, two of the large carriers that I was working for, they're looking for not only size of the organization and, you know, we're talking about endpoints, devices, things like that, but you're talking about what kind of data do these companies store? Um, what kind of vendors are they working with? What kind of profit do they make in a given day or week? Um, and, and you're trying to get a handle on if an event um, you know, completely cripples an organization, what is the maximum loss that we're looking at? And candidly, there's, there's towers of hundreds of millions of dollars of insurance that still isn't enough um, in, a, in a large-scale breach-type incident. Yeah. Speaking of large-scale breach type incidents, let's let's do hypothetical here. What what for ex, what for example would have happened from your perspective had your prior carriers insured Colonial? Yeah. So uh, we always like to say if an insured is being a good insured, right? And that just means are they going to be transparent with the insurance carrier about what's going on? Typically, the policies have a discovery provision, and that means that you should put the carrier on notice of this potential claim or incident as soon as reasonably practical after discovering an incident. In that way, the the idea is that carriers are better positioned to make recommendations on vendors by the sheer volume of events that they're seeing. And while people always have their relationships with a law firm that they've been doing business with for 30 years, insurance carriers are working with vendors, both on the law firm side, and we call them breach coaches, and incident response digital forensic firms like Arite, who, again, do these matters routinely, know exactly what the policies will cover, and and try to make sure that the insured is getting the most benefit out of those policies and that coverage. Let's say Colonial was good, and they, they placed the carrier on notice of the event. They would have a discussion about what vendors are being retained, at what rates, um, they would talk about you know, what they've seen in, in this type of ransomware context, what might be expected in terms of outage time uh, or things like that. 
And then the conversation moves into once you, and sometimes the vendor conversation is a very large hurdle. So I, I don't mean to minimize that. It can sometimes take several days for companies or, or an insured to agree, agree on who's going to handle this matter. But let's say that all, you know, that all was taken care of. The next conversation, especially in the ransomware context, is what, what are we looking at? Are we looking at the potential to engage the threat actor in negotiation conversations? Or do we have viable backups from which we can restore in a timely manner? If not, you know, can we recreate data? Is that an option instead of paying the ransom? We're also looking at risk of data exfiltration. And you know, even if we have backups, is there a different threat that we need to be concerned about from a, a PR perspective or from a cost perspective? Because the disclosure of data can implicate a whole laundry list of third-party or regulatory actions that will still cost the organization money. Finally, the, we're having a conversation about, okay, even if we want to pay this ransomware, can we? And that's that's due to the OFAC SDN list and other global watch lists, wanting to make sure that nobody's paying a, an actor that has a, a nexus to any sanctioned entity. So once that decision is made, which heavily involves um, the law firm, the insurance company, the client, and provided that an OFAC clearance check was performed and passed, then a carrier would typically have to give their consent for the insured client to pay the ransom. Um, and that is a requirement under most policies to have a, this consent provision. So provided all of those things went well, uh, there would be coverage theoretically for both the ransom itself and the associated transaction fees. Um, more broadly, there's coverage for the incident response costs. So the breach coach legal fees, forensic investigation fees, public relation fees, notification fees if data was uh, exfiltrated and we need to make public notice to consumers or regulators. That involves uh, you know, either printing or mailing, emailing fees, credit monitoring fees, um, and all those would be eligible for coverage under a typical policy at, you know, at, a, at a large carrier. Um, again, those 360-type policies that we're talking about, because a large company like this would, would most likely have all of those coverage modules. Finally, there would be coverage for, for the business interruption loss. Uh, we know that Colonial was down for several days. So if they could prove that they had sustained uh, an impact to their profit, that profit, again, there would be forensic accountants involved. Uh, insurance adjusters are not forensic accountants. So there does need to be a layer of verification beyond that uh, when it comes to uh, net profit and loss. And so that, you know, provided polls were applied and, and came through, then there would be coverage for the lost profit during that, that period. Finally, you know, there would be coverage if there was any resulting third-party lawsuit sounding in uh, negligence related to the security practices, you know, any consumer lawsuits of, about impacted. Okay. There's a big difference between IT and OT assets. Uh, wh yes. What about the OT assets? Would that have been included in the same kind of coverage or would they have had to have a separate policy? Yeah, probably a separate policy. So the cyber policies are designed to cover your your software, um, your your virtual system, right? They're they're not designed to cover your property damage, and that's been in many policies for a long time. There's a property damage exclusion. There are some endorsements that are called bricking endorsements. That if you ask some any technical experts, they'll say that it's very rare that a device actually gets bricked <laughs> to, to, to the fact that the firmware is you know not viable anymore, but the cyber insurance market has kind of used that endorsement to provide coverage for um, physical device replacement in, let's say, a ransomware context. So it's definitely disputed. Insurance policies are often looking to property policies or otherwise saying, hey, we're not covering this to physical devices. And, and so, yeah, you know, other than that, the software rebuild, data recreation, all of that would be typically covered under, under a cyber policy. 
Uh, what about uh, future damage, reputational impact to to future profit as well? I mean, these guys got tremendously negative coverage in the press over the last, you know, and even today, right? Over the last, what it's been now, three weeks. Is that insurable? Typically, future damages like that wouldn't be insurable. There are some reputational endorsements that have a sublimited coverage, which means that it's a a much smaller dollar amount that you're insured for versus your total policy limit, which could be, let's say, $10 million. And let's say the reputational harm was for $1 million. If you can prove that there was uh, a loss over, and again, the time period is usually quantified, let's say it's 12 months. Um, If you can prove the nexus to your lost profits, from the direct reputational harm, there are limited circumstances of coverage under some cyber policies for that. But you know, apart from that, you know, crafty endorsement, you're not going to get that type of you know future damage coverage, which is problematic for a lot of clients. That again, most of the time, it's a, a ransomware experience because there's an outage time associated, and sometimes systems are too expensive to be brought back for smaller insureds. So you just see people shutting down certain lines of business, particularly in the MSP space, because it's not possible for them to bring it up and insurance isn't going to cover them for the loss of your contracts indefinitely. It's usually for a specified period of time beyond the outage time period. Yeah, it's uh, it feels like kind of a, <laughs> a vortex that you fall into and there's no good way out, even if you've had sort of standard coverage and protection along those lines. Staying with Colonial for a second, many of us in the community believe that they would be found guilty of of at least contributory negligence. Can you you help our listeners understand that legal theory and its uh, sister theory, comparative negligence? Yeah, sure. So, um, and I think we also discussed this, this concept of contributory negligence, comparative negligence comes from the personal injury property damage world. And, you know, there's pure contributing negligence in a minority of states, Alabama, Maryland, uh, North Carolina, Virginia, D.C., and that will bar a plaintiff's right to recovery against a defendant in a suit of negligence saying, plaintiff, you were also at fault in this event, and so no one can recover against the other. Comparative negligence, by contrast, which the majority of states have adopted, speaks to relative degrees of fault in an incident. And so even if there is a negligent plaintiff, they can still recover against a defendant that was, let's say, more at fault. Many states then also use 50% rules and 51% rules to bar recovery for a plaintiff if they were that much at fault for the incident. So, you know, if some states say, and this is modified contributory negligence, right? So they say, if you're over 50% at fault, you can't recover at all. Or some say, if you're under 51, you can recover still. And, And so while it might be easy to say, Colonial, you should have adequately protected the security systems or, you know, you needed to patch uh, more regularly or, you know, whatever the claim is going to be against sounding in negligence. I'm unaware of a successful case of an insurance company against its insured for, for being negligent and causing a cyber incident to happen. It's sort of the underpinning of these policies is the errors and omissions concept. So clients are covered for negligent acts, errors and omissions. Coverage can be precluded for, you know, among other reasons, intentional conduct, like lying on an underwriting application. For example, if uh, Colonial HUD said that they maintained a certain security parameter requirement that was proven to have not been implemented or followed in this incident, you know, maybe, but it's an uphill battle because I think you would get the argument from uh, brokers and from insureds that it's illusory coverage. Well, if you're not covering my negligent act, then what would this cyber policy theoretically cover? 
And I think until there's standardization across the industry of what a minimum security requirement means and what people are going to be held to, then policies can't underwrite and, and make a, an opinion on you know, what best practices were or were not used in a given incident. Yeah, I mean, this is this is it's like crazy time, you know. If yeah. if contributory negligence uh, is at play, you you know, you, it's obvious, right? You may spend uh, millions of dollars on coverage and and still end up with no coverage if, depending upon how poorly your cybersecurity preparedness appears in a court of law. Curious to me, I mean, how close are we to standardizing those baselines for what is satisfactory and what isn't satisfactory? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> your guess is probably as good as mine. I do think it is getting better. For example, we've, I've even seen in the industry a reflexive uh, or responsive change in the past year. There was an insurer and all of their clients that we dealt with hadn't, hadn't had any multi-factor implement, implemented <laughs> in their systems or environments. So wow. you wonder, you know, was that question even asked on the underwriting application? Well, now you're moving to carriers that are requiring that you have MFA implemented, that you have an EDR solution implemented before they'll even write coverage. So I think that there have been serious responses to what the industry has seen were very large areas of security risk, open RDP. You know, I mean, <laughs> things that you, it might seem obvious to the security industry for, for regular American organizations, it's just not thought of the same way. It's just thought about, well, can I access this? Can I get it done? Someone's you know, pressuring me for time and, and I need to get something done. So I think the drive for business and, and getting business done quickly has circumvented you know, best practices and security standards. But I do think that the cybersecurity industry is responding you know, pretty aggressively in terms of trying to minimize what has seemed to be the, the largest uh, culprit of these incidents in the past year and a half. Yeah. Was it Marsh and... With Marsh and Microsoft, didn't they hook up to try to do something like that? Is that my imagination? Yeah, you know, I I can't, you can't quote me on all the partnerships, but there are so many, um, you know, pairings of more established cybersecurity insurance players and teaming up with more uh, technically minded organizations to provide a different solution to their clients, really to to increase their, make their risk posture better. Yeah, and when a, when a company like CNA gets attacked to the tune of $40 million in a ransomware attack. Isn't that sort of embarrassing to the industry? I mean, if you, if you cybersecurity insurance provider can't keep its own house in order, it's sort of an odd message to the, uh, to the market at large. Yeah, I think, you know, the market, I will say, has been kind in responding mostly in that everybody's more worried that it could happen to them too, right? Um, you had CrowdStrike affirmatively coming out about, about their hack. And, and so I think the idea is, Info sharing and intelligence sharing is only going to, you know, better prepare the industry going forward. And yeah, I mean, it just shows that that these big fish are at the forefront of threat actors' minds, and and they know that these are <laughs> these are good money makers because yeah, these no businesses kidding. have no choice. So, talk with us about the direction of uh, risks, rates, and trends in the industry. How is it that an insurer can make the same margins as a PNC policy, for example, when we seem to have criminal break-ins with big numbers now almost daily? How, how can yeah. insurers cover those risks and still be commercially viable? Yeah, and I think the short answer is, you know, that they're not right now. And so that's why a lot of them are doing the overhaul. You know, these are big cyber books who were previously profitable for many, many years. And then from 2019, with the rash of ransomware and the rise in associated business interruption losses, 
which you might see a big ransom number and think that's big, but you multi, multi-million loss of business income submissions uh, on the claim side for, for these people that were impacted. And that's whether they paid a ransom or not, right? The outage time is still the outage time. So, right. you know, th- those two combining um, factors really did put the books in a bad position. And so the ripple effect says, you know, everybody's heard tighter underwriting, not offering or renewing policy coverage to bad risks, increasing the premiums for, for policies covering those first and third party cyber risks, and then introducing more drastic measures like co-insurance on cyber extortion coverage or sublimited coverage. And that goes back to the, you, you might have a policy for 10 million, but you're only going to get a million dollars in coverage on ransomware. And then, you know, in addition, an additional factor would be, and not only are you only getting a million dollars, but um, you insured are responsible for 50% of that. So I think by, you know, changing the nature of coverage related to these high risk areas and, you know, again, raising the security threshold of organizations in order to obtain an insurance policy, carriers are seeking to kind of regain that commercial viability. Um, and you also have the introduction of, of these MGAs that are, you know, backed by larger insurance companies or reinsurers, and they're really uh, tech forward. And they're trying to push the platforms as early risk detection and uh, better risk management while being transparent to the insurance companies that are, you know, ultimately going to be indemnifying the organization if a loss um, is substantiated. Yeah. And, what you know, uh, today's threats are such that it's very difficult to wrap your arms around people or process or technologies mm-hmm. and all of them are at play and the threat uh, landscape gets more complicated every day. It's, and then if the way to sustain viability in the insurance business is to lower your, your payout, your exposures, or, or to look for co-insurance, it feels to me like, you know, this is going in a negative direction as, uh, instead of a positive direction in terms of, again, you know, remaining commercially viable. I don't want to put you on the spot, but what do you, what do you forecast over the next, say, three to five years in terms of insurability and the kinds of insurance policies that companies will actually be able to get? I still think that um, organizations are going to be able to get a robust policy that covers and manages most of the cyber risk that they're seeing. I think probably like everybody is speculating where the the change is going to be the most is in the ransomware cyber extortion space. And I think we're kind of all waiting for government regulation to be tightened up on that on that point. You know, we're kind of all in this nebulous position post-October 2020 OFAC advisory. And I think it's left the private sector kind of in the lurch, right? You know, insurance companies, their clients, forensic vendors, law firms, everybody doesn't, you know, the climate around making a ransom payment or determining to make a ransom payment uh, is very tricky right now. And so I, <laughs> I think that we'll see more regulation on that on that aspect, which will either uh, make ransom coverage obsolete because no one will be able to pay or, or and this is my, you know, my ideal uh, scenario, we're, we're going to see a reduction in, in the number of claims, but that's going to be because everybody's better protected or managing their risk better, um, again, through whether it's an endpoint detection monitoring platform or um, you know other again light security things MFA um, not allowing employees to access RDP you know using a VPN connection I think that people becoming aware of it and not wanting to be the victim of a ransomware attack will drive some people to do the right thing but I think ultimately what's going to change the most is is government regulation and and how that affects what insurance coverage can be offered but yeah, I don't think a, that the, the yeah <laughs> right. It's about time too, I, I think, uh, unfortunately, but nonetheless, there are, there are times when, you know, government regulation is necessary and 
hopefully it'll be executed in a uh, way that is both positive for insurers as well as for companies that are acting in an inappropriate way. You're, you're now working for an incident response company. What, is your role with RTA focused on advisory services for customers dealing with insurers? And what are your biggest challenges? Yeah. So while we do have, um, you know, MDR solutions, advisory solutions, the largest part of our practice is that digital forensic incident response. So, you know, doing a forensic investigation to determine root cause, to help make sure the client is brought back up um, in a clean environment. And the majority of those cases are with insured clients. My personal job is to really maintain those partnerships in the industry to better understand and meet the needs of the industry, how we can prevent events from happening again. And again, better an insured security posture overall. Yeah, I mean, I think as an industry, everybody, and this is this is hopefully a good thing. You know, we've been tracking this data. Carriers have been having to do it on their own. Arite does track the data for the incidents that it uh, works on for people. And so the idea being, you know, I think we're we're happy to share this information with the government, and we want to be a partner. I think that there's, like you said, a lack of actuarial data statistics and. Um, you know, even though we've all been gathering it for the past couple of years, it's still not the um, not the robust long of actual data that you would see in property casualties. So I think just trying to get there and get our arms around it, which is also hard because the landscape is constantly changing, right? And, and threat actors are constantly changing their tactics. But to the extent that you know we can continue to wrap our arms around you know best security practices, what we've seen, threat actor patterns, and how we can leverage all this data to make informed industry wide decisions, I think that's going to be important. And I do think that the cybersecurity insurance industry has kind of already had that collaborative nature, knowing that we were kind of the only repository of that information. So, uh, yeah. (laughs) You have a lot of competitors. Are there many people in focus where you focus as a company? I would say nowadays more than ever, yes. I think those that are experienced in what the insurance process looks like is a lot smaller. And so, of course, there's always room for, you know, new players to come into the industry. And there are obviously millions of American organizations that can benefit from security services. The number that that are really, you know, that are more known and reputable in the cybersecurity insurance space is, is smaller than, than the many vendors you see out there today. Yeah, I, that's what it kind of feels like to me as well. So conscious of the time here. So one more question, if you don't sure. mind, Lynn. With the realization that supply chain attacks have become pretty much a daily reality, it seems there are long tails of impact are basically unknown, right? I mean, we have right. no, no idea what's we have no idea what's happening, for example, at Colonial as we speak. Will the insurance industry continue to provide coverage on supply chain attacks? And and what do you think the future holds in in that very specific regard? Yeah, sure. So Typically, the the current policies, coverage is triggered based on an insured organization's belief of unauthorized access to their data or systems. So as long as they can substantiate that, the threshold for coverage under an insurance policy is a pretty easy bar. So the policies have to respond to provide that benefit promised to their insured client, which means kind of pay now uh, for your client and worry about pursuit of subrogation or responsible parties later. And so at at least in the past, when we've seen these larger incidents, the the carriers are really just tracking the incidents on a large scale for what we would assume is going to be a later either subrogation action or um, just, you know, claim against these parties to try to recover this amount. Where that goes and and what that rate of recovery will be is unknown. 
but that's kind of the best way of doing it right now in terms of the losses that they're facing. In the future, we we already know that underwriters are getting much smarter and asking way different questions about third-party suppliers, the type of insurance that they that the third-party suppliers carry, the type of contract that the insured has with this this supplier, and and that's becoming more important to either make an instant request under another policy for coverage, which sometimes uh, insurance companies will do that, knowing that there is no dispute of responsibility. And then other, you know, in other circumstances, it's going to, um, again, just kind of lay the groundwork for, for a later recovery. So I think as the, as the terms tighten and if an insured is able to provide all of this information requested around their third-party relationships, there, there probably won't be a coverage issue, but there are requirements that, you know, certain contracts need to be presented to the underwriters in order for coverage on a, a third-party attack to be eligible under the policy. So I, I think that, you know, it's not going away anytime soon, but as long as we're still in this space of, as long as it affects an insured's data or systems, their cyber policies have to respond. So until that language changes or tightens up, the carriers are still going to be responsible and bearing the brunt of, of the costs and having to worry about, again, recouping their costs at a later unknown date and time. Because as you said, they're, the, the losses are just going to continue. <laughs> Good answer. Thank you. I do want to thank our guest, uh, Lynn Peachy, again, for taking time out of her schedule to join me in what I thought was an instructive and revealing exchange. So thank you, Lynn. Thank you for having me. Sure. And and thanks to our listeners for joining us in a, another episode of Cyber Theory's exploration into the complex world of cybersecurity technology, and digital realities. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve King, signing out. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Cyber Theory, or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again.